So let's get on with tonight's Bible study, Exodus 16. In my absence, you heard uh, the 15th chapter. Now let's look at the 16th chapter of Exodus. This deals with subjects of manna, of Sabbath, and of certain problems that begin to emerge after they're delivered from Egypt. They set out from Elim. Now, Elim was a place of refreshing. In our sojourn, we will always be brought by the Lord to places of refreshing. An oasis. They're wonderful when you're trekking through the desert. God has put them there for us. This was understood by John Bunyan in the Pilgrim's Progress. There was a, a place there of provision for the pilgrims, but it's temporary, but it's adequate. It re-encourages us. It reignites us. It certainly refreshes us. It is represented by Elam, by a oasis. And I've been to the Sinai. There's not many places that can be called an oasis in the Sinai or in the Arabian desert. Then they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Notice they did not learn from the divine correction in chapter 15. They did not learn from the divine correction in chapter 15. In our sojourning, in this life and in this world, be it as individuals, be it as marriages, be it as families, be it as churches, be it as the corporate bride of Christ, when we fail a test, we can be absolutely positive we will keep going through that test again and again until we get it right by God's grace. This is something that makes us wander in circles. They began to grumble again. And as usual, they turned against the leadership, Moses and Aaron. Always blame the pastor, blame the elders. You're not hearing from the Lord. You're not spiritual. Look what's happening we are on a trek, we're told in 1 Corinthians 10, through the wilderness. We're heading through the, to the promised land, but we're going through a wilderness. The whole congregation, all of them, grumbled. And the sons of Israel said to them, Would that we died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, that is the flesh pots of Egypt, when we ate bread to the full, you brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. A reference to this is found in the book of Numbers chapter 11. Look with me, please, to Numbers chapter 11. Verse 4, the rabble who were among them, the rabble, had greedy desires. The first people to complain are going to be the rabble, those who are governed by greedy desires. And also the sons of Israel. Others joined them. They wept again and said, Who give us meat to eat? We remember the fish we used to eat for free in Egypt. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. Now our appetite is gone and there's nothing at all to look at except this manna. 
accept this manna, our spiritual food. The old creation longs for the world. They forget that they were slaves in Egypt, that they were doomed in Egypt. The old creation looks with fondness on our past lives in a fallen world. All of us who've been saved out of the world have those things. We battle with the old nature and with recollections that naturally will come to us and that the devil is more than apt at reminding us of. It could be immoral sexual relations. It could be things to do with substance abuse. It could be the things of the world. We forget that we were slaves. He who commits sin is slave to sin. We forget that we were bound for hell. We were designed to perish. Or that we were destined to perish. We were not designed to perish, but destined to perish. We were designed for eternal life, but destined to perish. The old nature will have a natural propensity to long for the world. People professing to be Christians but who have greedy, self-serving desires will be at the forefront. They will be the first ones to whinge and incite, but others will join them. This will particularly tend to occur when we go through difficult spouts, difficult sections of our ultimate journey in victory. We need to understand this. The Exodus teaches about our sojourning in this life. Now, what are we told again in 1 Corinthians 10? With most of them, God is not well pleased. They came out of Egypt. They were baptized in the water and the cloud, but with most of them, God was not well pleased. I'm afraid when we read the seven churches of Revelation, that is true of Christians. With most, God is not well pleased. How we handle trials and adversity. Anybody can handle blessings. At Elam, you can put your feet up. And we should. But then we have to get on with our journey. Look with me, please, once again, back to Exodus 16. They remember the things of Egypt, the things of the world, how good they had it. When I was in the world, I had cocaine. I had, because I had a, a lot of money, I had the, well, you, you can guess sexually and so forth. I had these things. I had a lot of things. And I also had a ticket to hell, a one-way ticket to hell. Verse 4, but the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven, for you and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. Now, of course, God already in eternity knows. He wants us to know. And he wants us to know about ourselves and each other. And it will come about in verse 5 on the sixth day. When they prepare what they bring in, it'll be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel, At evening you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. In the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your grumblings against the Lord. And what are we? 
that you grumble against us. Take it out, not on the Lord who you can't see, but on those faithful to the Lord who you can. And Moses said, this will happen, in verse 8, when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread to the full in the morning. For the Lord hears your grumblings, which you are, which you grumble against him. <laughs> and what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, Come here before the Lord, for he has heard your grumblings. And it came about as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel, that they looked towards the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud, the Shekinah. Hatifaret Adonai, Beshekinah. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I've heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. You will know that I am your God. So it came about at evening that the quails came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp, a mixture of meat and manna, as we shall see. <coughs> Jet lag, you learn how to get used to. But crossing the equator, when you go from the summer to the winter, you don't. It's very easily to catch a cold when you cross the equator and you go from the summer to the winter, especially here in England, where the only place you're going to find an air conditioner is in your automobile. So you shivering <coughs> the southern hemisphere, but when you get back up here, you're perspiring bullets. And I've got a chest infection when I was in Africa. I heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel. Speak to them. At twilight, you'll eat the meat. In the morning, you'll be filled with bread. So it came about at evening, the quails came, covered the camp, and the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew evaporated, it burned up. On the surface of the wilderness, there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. On the sons of Israel, they saw it, and they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It's the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. What is it? The Hebrew word for what is ma, ma, manna. What is it? What do you mean, what is it? It's what is it? <laughs> it's almost kind of comical in the Hebrew. They didn't know what it was. Well, it's what is it? What is it? It's what is it? It's the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it every man as much as he, he should eat and take an omer, a piece, to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. Now, this is where the omer, the counting of the 50 days between Passover and Pentecost, 
Hagshavuot comes from, same term. And the sons of Israel did so, and some gathered much and some little. When they measured it with an omer, he who had gathered much had no access, excess, and he who had gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered as much as he should eat. And Moses said to them, let no man leave any of it until the morning. But they did not listen to Moses, and some left a portion of it until the morning. It bred worms and became foul. And Moses was angry with them, and they gathered it morning by morning, every man as much as he should eat. But when the sun grew hot, it would melt. God ordained for it to all be consumed, all eaten. Remember, man shall live by every word of the mouth of God, from the mouth of God. Jesus is the word. He is the Logos in Greek. He is the Mamre in Aramaic. And he is the Davar, Davar, the word of the Lord in Hebrew. He is, of course, the Word of God incarnate, as the scripture is him in print, as we always point out. Eat it. Eat all of it. Don't leave it. Eat every bit of it. What you leave will be consumed by worms. Now, we have a Morial teaching on our website where we address this issue. It's called the cafeteria. The cafeteria. Uh, I think it's still, it should still be on the Morio website. Look with me, please, to the book of Acts. Look with me, please, to the book of Acts. Paul's farewell to Ephesus. Okay. Verse 27 of chapter 20. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. In the cafeteria, we talk about the people who see the word of God as a cafeteria. I will eat this, but not that. We'll do the chicken salad today, thank you, but we will not be doing the vegetables. We will be doing this and not that. Well, as we talk about on the teaching tape, in cafeterias or refractories of universities, <laughs> There's a section for the college athletes, people on sports scholarships. And they have a menu prepared by professional nutritionists. They don't have a lot of choice in what they eat. Everything right down to how many carbs, how, many, how much protein, the weight is all measured out for these athletes. They have a nutritionally supervised diet for these athletes. Paul tells us to run the good race, fight the good fight. We are to spiritually have a supervised diet. It's not a pick and choose. It is everything. Now, it's not wrong, as we say, to have a favorite psalm or a favorite gospel or a favorite verse. We all have those things, and that's not a problem. But it is a problem when we emphasize some things to the negation of others. There's people who do not like to talk about holiness or morality. There's people who like to avoid subjects like the permanency of Christian marriage. There are people who like to avoid things, even the fate of their unbelieving relatives. 
if they don't get saved. People like to avoid that stuff. And I suppose the natural mind would. But the Lord tells us, eat all of it. It's not a cafeteria. Don't leave any of it. There are deceivers in the church who Satan has corrupted or placed here, like Rick Warren, who says, avoid end-time prophecy. It's a diversion. Now, Jesus emphasized the importance of it. He reiterated his commands. Be watchful. Be alert. Be watchful. Be alert. No, forget about what Jesus Christ said. Rick Warren says we don't need that. And there's people who prefer Rick Warren to Jesus Christ. This goes on and on. I watched a short video clip today by someone called, someone who I always knew was a false teacher. His name is Andrew Womack. It's unbelievable, the nonsense this guy was saying. You can only believe his nonsense if you don't eat all of the scripture. False teachers will always take certain scriptures to support what they want to believe. Remember, it is the sum of thy word is truth. Everything in the Bible is true. It's all true. Everything in there is true. But it is the sum of thy word that is truth. Eat all the manna. Don't leave any of it. And eat it daily. Eat it daily. So we move on. Eat all of it. What takes place next? They gathered it by morning. Now, how do we interpret this correctly? Well, as always, we interpret the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, if you want to call it that. This is a problem. We take something that has to do with covenant relationships, the old covenant and the new, and we equate it with two sections of the Bible corresponding to those covenants. And we say one is for the Jews and one is for the church or something like this. These are people who are taking dispensationalism way too far. The only Bible the early Christians had is the word of God. That was the Old Testament. We do not make a distinction. Oh, that's the Old Testament. This is the, no, no, no. We make a distinction between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, but we don't make a distinction between the Hebrew Scriptures and the Greek scriptures. We don't do that. The early Christians did not do that. Oh, that's the Old Testament. No, no. There's a distinction between the covenant relationships. Don't take a covenantal term, a theological term, and make it a literary term. That is an artificial border. If we take it to that extreme, of saying, oh, that's the Old Testament. We're New Testament Christians. The only Bible that the first Christians had was the Old Testament. Let's look. Let's continue. So, interpreting the old in light of the new, where do we go? Well, obviously, we go to the sixth chapter of John's Gospel, something we've explained many times. I won't go into it in depth, but we need to do it in order to understand Exodus 16, okay? 
Jesus says this in verse 27, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food, the broma, which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give you. For on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. Okay? This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now, repeatedly, this chapter states and restates that the key to salvation is belief. Believe what? Believe the word of God. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven, in verse 33, and gives life to the world. Jesus continues. They say, give us this bread. And in verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and do not believe, etc., etc. I don't want to divert too much from what we're looking at relative to Exodus 16. Okay. He continues, verse 41, the Jews, that is the Judeans, therefore were grumbling about him. Now, notice that term grumbling is the same term used for grumbling in the Septuagint. It's making a comparison to the people who grumbled against Moses and Aaron in Exodus 16. If you were to read the Septuagint, you'll see it's the same grumbling. They grumble about him the way they grumbled about Moses because he said, I am the bread that comes down out of heaven. They were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? These were people who knew him from Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. It goes on. Verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. Eating throughout Scripture is always believing. We see this of Jeremiah being told, eat the scroll. Ezekiel, eat the scroll. Ezekiel 2 and 3. John chapter 10, eat the scroll. Eat the word. Eat the bread of life. Jesus is the scripture incarnate. The scripture is Jesus in print. Eating is believing. It's in the Hebrew scriptures, it is in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, it is in the book of Revelation. Believe, believe, believe. When you eat something, it metabolically becomes a part of you. Metabolically, it's a part of you if you eat and digest something. If you eat the word of God, it spiritually becomes a part of you. You ingest it, but it metabolically becomes a part of you physiologically. And also, if it's the word of God, 
it becomes a part of you spiritually. It affects you. What you eat, you are. That is true metabolically. The word broma, the food. As you can see, guys like me are mostly haagen and lasagna, but let's not go there. Well, what you eat spiritually. People who eat garbage are not going to be very healthy. People who read the Koran or pseudo-logos, people who read the purpose-driven lie or the Book of Mormon or a papal encyclical, that's their food. That's, that's going to be what they are. What you eat, you are. We are to eat the word of God. It is Jesus in print. We are to ingest it. We are to believe it. I'm the bread. You eat it, you will not hunger, Jesus said in verse 35. But I said to you, you've seen me and do not believe. It's the work of God that you believe. The bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven, gives life to the world. This is the work of God. Now look what it says. The work of God is that you believe. Eating is believing. Don't work for the food that perishes, in verse 27, but for the food that endures to eternal life. False doctrine, wrong doctrine will perish. The word of the Lord endures forever. There are things that a human cannot metabolically digest, like cellulose. You can eat it, but it's never going to become a part of you. It's useless. But there are proteins you can eat that will become a part of you. Spiritually, it's the same exact concept. Jesus continues. Verse 48, I'm the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also, which I shall give you for the life of the world, is my flesh. Enter Satan. Perverting out of the overall context, beginning in verse 53. Truly I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. Do we believe in his blood, cleansing from sin? Do we believe in his word, his death and resurrection? He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Well, wait a minute. Doesn't it say before that various times in the same pericope, in the same chapter? Not that this chapter of the visions in the original Greek. That eternal life comes from belief? Yes, it does. If you believe, if you believe it, you eat it. You make the word of God a part of you. Eat his flesh, drink his blood. Truly I say to you, eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. You have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I'll raise him up on the last day. 
For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. <coughs> Verse 58. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread shall live forever. Notice how this passage continually, once again, says eternal life comes from belief and equates believing with eating. That is the context. You see that in Revelation chapter 9, Ezekiel chapter 3, it's in Jeremiah, etc. Jeremiah said, I think it's chapter 15 and chapter 17, thy word was found Thy words were found, and I ate them, said Jeremiah. Well, let's look. Now, in the Jewish Passover, to this day, it's celebrated. And it is a memorial. A memorial of what God did when he took the Israelites out of Egypt. And it's a looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. Our Passover, according to 1 Corinthians, the most paschal of the epistles, chapter 5, is likewise a memorial. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. He would have said, do this in remembrance of me. He would have said, It's a Paschal Seder. The last supper was a Paschal Seder. It is a memorial. Now, it's a very important memorial. And if it's desecrated, you can eat and drink judgment to yourself. But it's not cannibalism. In the book of Acts, chapter 15, the apostles, of course, were shown by the Holy Spirit to tell even the Gentiles who were becoming Christians not to drink blood. The consumption of blood, the ritual consumption of blood, was demonic. It was vampire religion. They were not to do it. Christians are forbidden to drink blood. Roman Catholicism claims, based on the scientifically debunked philosophy of accidents of Aristotle, formulated by Thomas Aquinas, finally, that the wine is actually the protoplasmic blood of Jesus Christ, and you drink it. Well, if that's his actual blood, which it isn't, it's a memorial, but if that's his actual blood, why are you drinking it? Are you a vampire? Are you a Dracula? That's demonic. Why are you drinking blood? The apostles were shown by the Holy Spirit, don't do it. You are taking something that is symbolic in context, out of context, and trying to make it somehow literal. When literally, Acts 15 says, don't do it. But let's look what else. Verse 63. How can eating the Roman Catholic Eucharist be the key to eternal life? And unless you do it, you can't have eternal life. How can you do that, say that, if in verse 63, it's the spirit who gives life? The flesh 
profits nothing in verse 63. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. It's the word. Eat the word. The flesh profits nothing. I guarantee your Roman Catholic Eucharistic Jesus is going to wind up in the sewage system in a couple of hours. His blood is going to go out into a urinal in a couple of hours if you are a Roman Catholic who believes this. It's ridiculous. It's nonsense. The text in context does not allow it. Neither do the corresponding reference passages. The flesh profits nothing. Now, this manna that fell in the wilderness is a type of Christ coming to us as the word of God. Eat it. Eat all of it and believe it. We have other teachings dealing with the cannibalistic and demonic nature of the Mass and the Roman, uh, and, and, and the Roman Eucharist. It's not our purpose now. We have other teachings on our website. I'm only addressing it relative to Exodus 16. There's more to it than this. But let's look further. That's the manna. Eat all of it. Everything in the Bible is there for a reason. We're not to leave any of it for the worms to consume. It's for us. It's not for worms. People who do not live by every word of the mouth of God are giving the scriptures to worm food. Now, what do worms eat? What kind of people do worms eat? Dead ones. Worms feast on the dead. They will crawl into the ear of a buried corpse and out of its nostrils. Worms feed on the dead. The word of God is the word of eternal life. So it is. Let's move on now to verse 22 of Exodus 16. It came about on the sixth day. They gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. Okay? Two omers for each one. When all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord meant. Tomorrow is a Sabbath observance, a holy Sabbath day. It's a day that is set apart based on the creation narrative in Genesis. Bake what you will bake, boil what you will boil, and all that's left over put aside to be kept until morning. <laughs> so they put it aside until morning, as Moses ordered, and it did not become foul, nor was there any worm in it. Notice that. It will not go to waste if we follow God's agenda. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath day to the Lord. Today, you will not find it in the field. It comes six days, not the seventh. The seventh, you'll have a double portion from the sixth. God rested. This idea of the Sabbath. 
Six days you'll gather it. On the seventh, the Sabbath, there will be none. And it came about on the seventh day that some of the people, now, of course, this would have been a Saturday, not a Sunday. And it came about on the seventh day that the, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my instruction? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore he gives you bread for two days on the sixth day. Remain every man in his place and let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. There were people who did not want to observe the Lord's Sabbath. And the house of Israel named it manna. What is it? And it was like coriander seed, white. And its taste was like wafers with honey. Then Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omerful of it be kept throughout your generations, that they may see the bread that I fed you in the wilderness when I broke you, when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now we have a couple of videos. I explain this idea of the honey. Honey is devash in Hebrew, and it's made by bees. A bee is a devora. The girl's named Deborah. A devora makes honey. Okay. Remember when he ate the scroll, it was sweet in the mouth, but bitter to the stomach. The word of God is always sweet to the mouth. Again, we have other teachings recording this. I mentioned it only in passing. And the Lord said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer full of it be kept throughout your generations, that they may see the bread that I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And of course, this was kept in the Holy of Holies. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer full of manna in it. Place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. And as the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron placed it before the Lord in the Ark of the Testimony to be kept. And then the sons of Israel kept the manna 40 years until they inhabited the land. And they ate the manna until and Cana. Now an omer is a tenth of an ephah. So we looked at the manna. Now we have the Sabbath. Let us look at the Sabbath. Remember, the Bible is not two books. It is one book. But there are two covenants. We draw a distinction between the covenants. Look with me, please, to understand the Sabbath from a Christian perspective, a Judeo-Christian perspective, to Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, in verse 1, let us fear, lest, that's subjunctive mood in Greek, I mean, it doesn't have to happen, while a promise remains of entering his rest, God's promise is there, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. <coughs> the promise, the divine guarantee is there, but the possibility exists of coming short of it, even though the Greek subjunctive implies doubt. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, 
That is the people in the wilderness. But the word they heard didn't profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest. Just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. God's works were finished. The lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. Jesus had to come for our benefit and do it, but God's plan was always there. And he thus said somewhere concerning the seventh day. Now notice verse four, somewhere. Even Paul did not remember where everything was in the Old Testament. And at this point, the Holy Spirit didn't remind him. We can't say chapter and verse. There were no chapters then, but the specific verse of the specific book, he knew it was there, but he forgot where it was. <laughs> Has that happened to you? You know the verse, you just forget where it is? Well, you might know the book or even the chapter, but you remember the, the verse? Well, that certainly happens to me. It happens to all of us, doesn't it? Well, it's encouraging to know what happened to Paul, and God let it happen. And I, it's obvious one of the reasons, at least one of the reasons God let it happen, was to show if it could happen to Paul, that can happen to us. It's more important to know what is in there than to know where it is. Now, it's good to know where it is, but it slipped his mind at this instance where it was. He just knew it was there. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Now, this was, of course, Paul, who'd been a rabbi, a disciple of Gamaliel. He knew the Torah really well. But he couldn't remember exactly where the particular verse passage was. God rested on the seventh day from his works. This was in, of course, Genesis, Breshit. And again, in this passage, another passage corresponding, they shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. What is this talking about? The Sabbath rest. The Sabbath rest. What is this idea of a Sabbath rest? How do we enter it? Look with me, please, to Colossians. Chapter 2. Verse 16. Now we have a new covenant. Therefore, let no one act as your judge. Don't let anyone judge you. In regards to food or drink. Or in respect to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. Seventh-day Adventism is based on the rejection of this verse. Ellen G. White. It's based on a rejection of, of, of this verse. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The Sabbath day was a shadow. The substance was entering Christ. The completed work of Christ on the cross and in his resurrection. We cannot earn our salvation. Striving to earn your salvation is a waste of time and energy, and it will never work. 
He did it for us. He had no sin and only he could do it for, for us because he had no sin. We have sin. We cannot do it. We just rest in the completed work of him. Now, we act because we've been saved, but we do not work in order to get saved. Let no one be your judge in regard to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. Those things are shadows of what the Messiah would do. Under the law, you had to strive, 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 and it still didn't work. It was the only religion God ordained, and part of its function was to show us that religion can't save you. We need a Messiah who kept the Torah perfectly. When you're born again, you stop relying on works. It doesn't matter if it's the Jehovah's Witnesses knocking on the doors with the Mormons or the Catholics going to the Novena or a pilgrimage to Fatima or Lourdes. It doesn't matter if it's Orthodox Jews doing the mitzvot. It doesn't matter if it's Muslims doing the Hajj. None of that works. Strive, strive, strive. You're wasting your time. We need a rest. Jesus said, I'll take care of this for you. I'll go to the cross in your, I'll take your sin and go to that cross in your place and I will raise from the dead to give you eternal life. Just enter my rest. Stop striving in your own strength. Be careful of sex like the Seventh-day Adventists or hyper-Messianic extremists. Not all of the modern Messianic movement are extreme, but there are some who, who are. Who are trying to put people in bondage to the law in various respects and kashrut, dietary laws, and Sabbath keeping is one of them. Now, by the way, my family, when we lived in Israel, we worshipped on Saturday. Everybody did, and we've always eaten kosher. But that was for because my wife and kids, they're, they're, they're Israeli Jews. It was for cultural reasons and for reasons of testimony to unsaved Jews, that Jewish identity is still important, although we believe in Jesus as the Messiah. It was for reasons of testimony. It was for reasons of culture. And it was for devotional reasons, but it was not for legal reason, legalistic reasons per se. Romans 14, verse 4, who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls. And stand he will, for the Lord's able to make him stand. One man regards one day above another, and another regards every day alike. Let each man be convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. I've got no problem with going to church on Sunday or to a messianic fellowship on Saturday. I've got no problem if your church meets on a Tuesday. I just don't care. Be convinced in your own mind and do it unto the Lord. Nobody has a right to judge you for it, and none of us have a right to judge somebody else for it. The substance belongs to Christ. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. He who eats, eats for the Lord. The substance belongs to him. He fulfilled the Torah. He fulfilled the law perfectly. If we try to fulfill it, we're going to fail. Israel failed and failed and failed. And if we try to fulfill it, we're going to fail. No, give it up. Enter into his Sabbath rest. The completed work.
of the Messiah. This is what the scripture <laughs> and so we understand the Sabbath from the perspective of the New Testament and we understand the manna from the perspective of the New Testament unfortunately unbelieving Jews unsaved Jews this is their heritage it is their book God gave it to them and through them but they have a very limited understanding of it. Even though they may read it in Hebrew, their understanding of its meaning is limited. They know somehow it points to the Messiah, but they don't know how, unless it's a believing Jew, whose numbers, thank God, are increasing, my family among them. We enter into his rest. The manna? Eat the manna. It falls every day. Double portion for the Sabbath. How Sabbath is Jesus? It's a double portion. We have the Gospels, the Epistles, the Book of Revelation, Book of Acts, and we have the Law and the Prophets, the Torah and the Haftorah. We've got a double portion. Double portion. First Corinthians 10 tells us this whole sojourn is a picture. That's what it is. A picture of our sojourning. The manna, the Sabbath. Let us not be grumblers. Let us not be nomianists or legalists. Let us not be judgmental of others for keeping customs and traditions that don't affect the substance of the faith, as long as they're convinced in their own mind. This is the meaning. The manna is to be eaten every day. If you're not reading the Word of God every day, and you're fortunate enough you can. The early Christians didn't have that option. They tried to memorize it. Paul tried to memorize it, but he forgot where certain verses were. Well, if we forget where certain verses were, you just Google it, or you go into a concordance, or you get your Bible and find it. We have so much, so much. We have the manna, that falls daily. And we have Jesus, our Sabbath rest.